Nada Kalam is a 28-year-old woman who works as an energy systems engineer with Telstra. It makes her something of a trailblazer. She's not the only young woman in a prominent role in the energy industry, but she doesn't have a lot of company. The Women in Energy group has reported that women make up only 20% of the energy workforce and 6% of leadership positions. Earlier this year, Nada was at an energy conference when she was approached by an older male executive. And the particular person came up to me and said, hey, I think you should join our team because I have a criteria to tick a diversity and inclusion target. I was not listened to, I was not respected, um, and I was constantly told that the only reason I was there was because I was sort of ticking a box. I'm Adam Morton, and this is The Innovators, a rewired podcast for ARENA, the Australian Renewable Energy Agency. This series is about the people driving the energy transition. NADA is at the cutting edge in several ways. Telstra, where she works, is at the forefront of a big corporate push into energy, particularly renewable energy, to secure their assets. NADA is central to that push and often called on to explain what the company is doing to the rest of the industry and the wider world. Telstra obviously is one of the largest energy consumers in Australia and that comes down to the critical infrastructure that we're dealing with. Tell us a little about your job. What does an energy systems engineer at Telstra do? I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, From what I understand, it's pretty much everything. So I do everything from admin to engineering to technical to finance. Um, So the day-to-day job that I do is um, pretty exciting, pretty interesting, and I have zero complaints. As an energy systems engineer, what I really look at is just Telstra's energy assets and how we can better utilise them. Let's go back to your experience at that energy conference earlier this year. How do you respond in the days and weeks and months after that? How does that shape how you behave in the future? Initially, it was almost a deal breaker for me. So it took a lot of confidence for me to come back into the engineering sector. uh, And that was one of my first experiences back in the energy and engineering world. And it was almost another reason for me to exit it because I just felt like there was nothing I could possibly do to influence such a skewed demographic. But in hindsight and now looking back and through an incredible amount of support that I get not only within my own team at Telstra but more broadly through family and friends, I've realised that me being there is a stepping stone for other people and it's enforcing a change that people are just not ready to take. And if it's not me, then it's not going to change in the near future. And I don't see myself as being the only one. There's by far, there's a lot of people who are trying and who are doing really, really well and who are much more successful than I will ever be and all power to them. But if there are not more people who are stepping up and trying to break into this mould, it's never, ever going to change. So I'm just super lucky. I've got a really good team where I'm working at the moment. They're very supportive of my development um, and just really working to help change the industry more broadly. And if diversity is one of them, then so be it. And we're trying to encourage difference in a space that has been very monotonous in the past. I'm interested to know if this is what you expected when you were coming into the industry. Let's go back a bit further. Why did you get into engineering? Was it a family thing? 
Um, my dad's an uh, academic in electrical engineering and a lot of people thought that was my ticket in. By far, it was definitely not. In fact, he still does not help me with questions that I have, so it's very unhelpful. Um, but I got into engineering by fluke, so I actually always wanted to do something around human rights and helping society and community development and social work. Um, and so I actually really wanted to do law. <laughs> And I sort of went into, uh, I went to University of Melbourne where Melbourne Model had started and I didn't really have the opportunity to do law as an undergraduate. So I thought I want to do something that's still really meaningful and that I'd really enjoy. And I was particularly good at maths and science. And my careers advisor at my female Anglican grammar school that I went to told me that I couldn't be an engineer because girls don't do that. And it was almost like that was the challenge accepted point that I had where I went, you know what? The fact that she said I can't do it, I really want to see why she thinks I can't do it. It was like a dare. It was a dare and dare accepted. (laughs) (laughs) So I went in and did engineering and realised, I guess, probably two years in that a lot of the societal changes that I wanted to see had a greater impact through engineers more than probably what our lawyers can achieve because lawyers are sort of bound by a bureaucracy that I'd never understand and never appreciate. Whereas with engineering, I saw myself being able to give back to the community in a much more meaningful way and the environment and society at a at a broad level. So tell us a bit about your experience when you turned up to start studying engineering. It was all right during the first couple of uh, first year, I guess, because it was a pretty large pool. So we started off with about 500 people. But I think it was my first day of first class where the lecturer said, only 30% of you will graduate um, and most of you will not be female. And I just went, I looked around and I went, no, nah, we've got a pretty good split right now. Um, but it was only in second year when I got a scholarship to do electrical engineering. And to be honest, that was the only reason I chose electrical was because of the scholarship. Otherwise, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. Um, I realised that I was one of the only few English-speaking females in my class. And most of them were international students who sort of um, grouped together. And I was definitely one of the very few, probably one of three females in my class. Out of a class of how many? About 100. Mm, Wow. Um, And we sort of started seeing that shrink as we got to fourth year when I graduated and just standing up on that stage going, that's right, I'm the last one standing. (laughs) So what's that experience like when you're going through? Does that – is there a point at which – that makes you wonder why you're there if you just missed the exit door when everyone else took it? <laughs> no, I actually found it really empowering. So um, particularly, I guess, growing up, I've always been on the outlier. So I've always been doing things that others have not wanted to do and I've always been trying to make changes that others have not wanted to make. And I guess this was just another experience for me to go, I have a role to play in contributing and making a change here. Um patriarchal society is alive and kicking anywhere we go and I think that uh, it needs to change and if that needs to change in an industry that is very much needing female perspective um, then so be it I want to be part of that change and I guess at university was a much more supported and comfortable environment so I never really felt it too much um, but definitely when I came into the workforce it was a different ball game. Yeah so tell us about that after you graduated What happens next? So I joined a massive oil and gas company um, as a graduate electrical power engineer. Can I ask you, was it your 
experience uh, in applying for jobs? Was your background a relevant consideration? Absolutely. So, look, I put in hundreds of applications. I'm not going to pretend like I put in one and, and got the job straight away. I put in a whole heap of applications and I kept getting knocked back uh, and I couldn't understand why. When I did finally land the job, we, I went into a conference where I met someone who had also been offered the same role at the same organisation but was then asked not to come in on the first day and I had no idea who he was and I didn't know the context that he was coming to me with and he came up to me and said, um, I just want you to know that you're the reason my job has been taken because they needed to bring a female into the electrical space and it was a choice between you or me and they picked you over me and I hope you're happy that I don't have a job right now and I just didn't know it obviously had nothing to do with that decision making obviously didn't want to be a quota or a tick in someone's box to say I've only got in because I'm female Um, I was pretty hurt I was pretty hurt for him that that's what he was told but I was also hurt that um, that's the perception that people had of me, that I was just a tick in the box and that I wasn't there because of the skills and the marks and the contribution, the work experience that I had. It was really just, oh, well, she looks the role. And I guess I carried that with, with me for a long period of time until I had to keep reinforcing to myself, you're here because you deserve it. Was that the message you got in the workforce as well after you started in that first job in oil and gas? In my first job... I- I started realising during my my first three years that the guys were always sent out onto site and I always ended up landing admin jobs and I was really good at it because I was just really good at staying organised and on top of things but I I never got the chance to go out on site and experience things like the others and I kept getting told that it was in my head and that if I put my hand up I could go and so I put my hand up multiple times and got thrown back and it was only when I finally... Um, really, really, really pushed to go out on the refi- on a refinery where I saw that they really didn't have anyone else to send. Again, last one standing. So take us through your work experience before you got to Telstra because you've had a couple of different roles. So I've pretty much done most roles from IT to engineering to HR to business analyst, global transformations, PMO. PMO being? A project managing officer done a whole suite of things. People saw me as being flexible and agile and learning new skills really quickly. And so I was pretty much just thrown into new projects all the time. And transitioning, as particularly as a graduate, that was really exciting to start off with because I said, okay, you know, my strengths are here and I'm really good at this and this is what I'm going to keep doing. And because I just kept getting shelved away from engineering, I started to believe that It's naturally happening and I didn't realise that it was actually structurally occurring and it wasn't something that was just naturally happening, that I was naturally progressing to more uh, management roles or more um, resource development roles. Like I had made that assumption and as I started drifting away from engineering, I realised that I was very strong in what I was doing and I didn't have the, the same confidence in all of that, that work than I did with engineering. Um, so I convinced myself that I wasn't meant to be an engineer and I left engineering after maybe three years. Uh, just, to, just to be clear, so did you feel like you were being pushed away from engineering roles or you were pushing yourself because 
of some of the attitudes you were facing? I was definitely being pushed away from engineering and I at no point in time think that I was pushing myself away. Quite the contrary, I kept putting my hand up to do things and I kept getting pushed back. But because I had natural skill of being good at a lot of other sort of project development roles, I convinced myself that I wasn't meant to be an engineer and that there's so many other opportunities doing things where women are a majority and I don't need to be constantly fighting about how I look or how I'm perceived or how someone might think of me or my age or my sex or any of those other parts or my faith, any of those other parts that sort of define who I am because going into a place where I'm more of a majority than I am a minority in that particular space just made me feel a lot more comfortable and I wasn't constantly facing hurdles. So what happened to put you back on engineering? I mean, that was clearly a... (laughs) A decision that you made yourself. You had yeah. a bit of a moment. Yeah, yeah. And I, I keep having moments. Um, but that particular moment, I decided that I was more uh, into business analytics and project management. So I joined a project management firm and landed myself into Telstra as a consultant and found myself to be doing a lot more technical engineering in that role and really enjoying it, just having the time of my life and learning so much, learning from an amazing team. And I had a very interesting conversation with Ben Burge where he asked, who's uh, the executive director at Telstra Energy, and he asked me, why are you doing this? Like, you really enjoy engineering. Is it something you want to do? And I said, nah, 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 nah. I can't do engineering. I'm not good at it. I haven't learned enough to be a proper engineer. Like, I don't have the graduate title to support me anymore. And he said, but you are good at it. Like everyone's learning and particularly around this space around innovation, having someone who doesn't think they know all the answers is exactly what the industry needs. And so he was probably the reason why, actually he was definitely the reason why I got the confidence back in saying, okay, you know what, I I can be an engineer and I, I am an engineer and I've learned enough and I have the right skills to be in this space. Um, so to be honest, I've only been with Telstra as an engineer since July this year. And when did you actually start with the company itself? Grand final, just after grand final weekend, 2016. <laughs> right. And you had a fairly interesting first day with the company, I understand. Can you tell us about that? First day of the company, which was last year, I started off as a business analyst and was pretty much taken out to Scoresby straight away out at a Telstra exchange, which is just a shonky little shack of a building with incredibly important infrastructure inside it. And we were installing some new Tesla batteries and solar panels out on that site. And we faced a couple of problems, uh, technical problems while we were out there. First day was out on site until around 11 o'clock. It was a real eye-opener to A, what exchanges look like in Telstra, but also how challenging the work is that we were doing. The main challenge was that a lot of what Telstra is trying to implement has to obviously keep into account Telstra's sites, Telstra's customers, not only Telstra's customers, the networks, all all networks, emergency services, and realising how critical the infrastructure is while trying to innovate with new technologies such as uh, lithium-ion batteries and solar panels. It's a real industry first, and a lot of organisations and companies claim they have all the answers, but really when you try to put all the pieces of the puzzle together, no one really has the full package fully understood. So by being there out on site, yes, we're, 
one of the first in the industries to be doing this sort of work, and particularly we're dealing with critical infrastructure, just the sheer amount of pieces to the puzzle is probably what shocked me. So it wasn't just a plug and play, it's a greenfield project, do what you like and get top end everything. It's understanding a brownfield environment, old infrastructure, critical infrastructure, and just making sure that at no point in time, not even for a second, you turn any customers off. And was Telstra ready for a young woman to be out on site when you had that opportunity on your first day? Yeah, absolutely. So Telstra is probably a lot different to the oil and gas sector where there is a lot more, when I say a lot more, it's two instead of one females out on site than what I was traditionally used to. Right, okay. And they had all the gear that you needed? Gear I needed probably not not necessarily. I wouldn't say that's a Telstra problem. I think that's more an industry problem. So I don't think I've ever found a safety vest that's fit me. And I'm not a, a small person by any stretch of the imagination, but they just don't come in female sizes. Um, I also have never found safety boots that are suitable for me. Um, unless I want them in neon pink and I've never found a safety helmet that is also not in neon pink that is the right size for my head. Right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, after the break, we'll hear more about NADA's role in the changes in energy underway at Telstra. You've probably heard about it on the telly or read about it in a newspaper. By having a better demand response program, we were able to save $600 million dollars in one week. Demand response program. They may uh, see a, a payment of $25 or more per event where they're asked to turn down their appliances. But just what is demand response? I'm Dewi Cook and today my work buddy Mottle and I are going to be answering exactly that in Mottle Explains the World. Mottle, help me understand demand response. Okay, so picture yourself at the airport, you've just checked in or you're walking to your departures gate and all of a sudden you hear an announcement over the loudspeaker that says that your flight is overbooked and the airline is looking for volunteers to get bumped off that flight. And what the airline is really looking for is at least one and possibly a few passengers who are flexible enough not to take that flight and fly at a later point. Yeah, as a matter of fact I have, and this happens all the time in America. So let's continue walking through that analogy and demand response has a lot of similarities to that and you'll see how that actually comes out. So when this occurs and the flight is overbooked, the airline really has two options at its disposal. Number one, which sounds a bit crazy, is to send another plane for these few passengers. And number two is to offer those passengers an incentive to be bumped off that first flight and take a flight at a later time. So that first option, sending another plane, seems wasteful and really is wasteful. The other approach that we discussed is to offer an incentive to the passengers to voluntarily be bumped. Now, it's important to recognise that not everyone can get bumped. Dewey, if you go to your friend's best friend's wedding in Chicago, you can't just miss that flight. You've got to get to the wedding that night. But there are passengers who have flexibility and are able to be bumped. The other important thing to, I guess, recognise about this analogy is that planes aren't overbooked and packed to the rafters every single time you fly. This only occurs a finite number of times in the year. It's not every day, but it's really it's infrequently and it's only when it's really busy. The market is overbooked or really extremely peaky for a very finite number of hours in the year, and it's these extreme events that 
cause and drive a lot of the cost in the industry. So just like sending another plane can be wasteful, building infrastructure to address these very finite number of peaks, which could be 10, 20, 30 hours of the year, 40 hours of the year, is also clearly wasteful. And just as passengers and airlines have that flexibility to, to move a bit, so too the electricity industry can use that same strategy to be flexible. What you're saying is, is that the airline in this analogy is the electricity market and in a nutshell, demand response involves reducing demand, electricity, to meet a need rather than increasing generation, just as an airline is moving passengers rather than just putting on a new flight. Spot on. That's exactly right. And ARENA, together with the Australian Electricity Market Operator and the New South Wales Government, have joined forces to launch a $36 million demand response trial that has just started actually on December 1 this year across Victoria, South Australia and in New South Wales. And there are 10 projects that we have funded together across the technology spectrum, ranging from smart thermostats in residential and commercial buildings all the way through to large commercial and industrial facilities. So I'm guessing that when we talk about energy peaking, it's something like a really hot day and everyone's using their AC. Is what you're telling me that I could get paid for turning off the lights or turning down my air conditioner? There are really a range of incentives, all the way from upfront payments to make sure that you're available to reduce demand when it's required, or it could be a reduction in your electricity bill. Let's say you're a household in New South Wales, say in Parramatta or Coogee Beach, you could increase the set point on your air conditioner or turn it off entirely and head down to the beach. On the flip side, if you're a commercial or industrial facility, say a grain handling and processing facility in South Australia, the facility manager could elect to fill or to remove grain from the silo at a later point or earlier in the day. Is demand response a new idea? Not at all. Demand response is really popular in overseas markets and used extensively across the US and in Europe. One example where demand response at scale has brought significant benefit is in PJM. PJM is an electricity market in the United States that covers a range of states, but everything from Delaware, Indiana, Maryland, Michigan, and New Jersey. And PJM reported after one of their demand response events that it saved more than $650 million in payments for energy in a single week. So we're hopeful really with the recent ARENA project that was launched together with AEMO and the New South Wales government that we can really kickstart the role of demand response in the east coast of Australia. And really the role of ARENA is to test those new technologies to increase the pool of customers and technologies that can participate while also looking to drive a secure and reliable integration of renewable energy into the grid. Okay, so I'm an energy consumer. What happens when demand response kicks in and how long am I going to have to have the lights out or have the air conditioning turned up? It's a hot day in the summer. It's, you know, let's, let's call it it's January 15 this year. It's been extremely hot for three days in a row. If you are a customer of some of the participants who include Enenoc, AGL, PowerShop or Energy Australia, you might get a text message, an email or even a call to your mobile phone saying, Dewey, can you voluntarily elect to reduce your demand for this afternoon period? So typically that spike in demand, that really high amount of hot, temperature, hot temperatures would come in that afternoon period and they would ask you to, to reduce your demand at that time. And it's simple as electing to then go to the beach or increase your set point of your air conditioner to, to get that demand reduced. 
So to find out more about demand response and the 10 projects that ARENA is backing as part of a three-year trial, go to arena.gov.au forward slash blog. And there's heaps of information, loads of videos, infographics, basically anything you've ever wanted to know about demand response is there. Back to you, Adam. Earlier this year, you helped launch a report by ARENA that found, among other things, that 80% of Australians want big corporates to use more renewable energy. Why is Telstra in energy at all? Probably less about what people want and more about what Telstra as an organisation wants. And I guess that comes down to what consumers are trying to advocate for, but probably don't really have the understanding of how the energy systems works as a whole industry. Telstra obviously is one of the largest energy consumers in Australia and that comes down to the critical infrastructure that we're dealing with, particularly around emergency services and keeping all your phone lines on and internet. So by being, I think we utilise 1% of Australia's total energy usage, which doesn't sound like much, but we're the top one of the top eight users of electricity in Australia. For one player, it's really significant. Yeah, and for a telecoms, you wouldn't particularly think that they would be the type of industry that would be using so much energy. So we've obviously noticed that we've got a lot of our own energy usage. Energy prices are skyrocketing, people's bills are getting higher, and Telstra is definitely not in a position to be free from expanding bills and high bills and prices skyrocketing. So what we're doing with Telstra Energy is really just looking at our existing fleet. So every exchange almost has standby power generation available just in case there is a blackout. Now, we live in an environment where blackouts are here and they're real and they can occur at any given time. So we need to make sure our sites are resilient enough to withstand the external pressures of the grid. Our role within Telstra as Telstra Energy, we're really just looking at how can we capitalise on our existing assets and not only support the grid, but really just see how we can reduce our energy costs and be a little bit more creative about how we utilise our assets. Yeah, I liked a quote from your boss, Ben Burge. You're talking about energy at Telstra. People don't appreciate that just how much hell there'll be to pay if people can't get access to Facebook, for example. I mean, you know, you really have to be able to keep things going. People have high expectations. Absolutely. Um, I was on a train the other day with someone and he goes, oh, well, I don't really care about what you guys do with your site infrastructure because I'm with Optus. And I went, well, that's great, but we actually also manage their infrastructure too. So you sort of have to care about what we do. (laughs) So can you just give us an idea of the sort of energy assets that Telstra does have? Because I don't think most people would understand that. So we've got a couple of hundred megawatts of diesel generation, so standby diesel generators, which really just uh, churn on when the grid blacks out. We've also got, I think, about a thousand megawatt hours of battery storage, which is, just to put that in perspective, uh, several times larger than Tesla's proposal in South Australia. So if we think about grid constraints and how we can creatively use existing infrastructure to support a grid that just does not have enough supply to meet demand, we really should be looking as an industry at how organisations like Telstra can actually contribute and be key players in supporting the grid at peak demand times. Yeah, and the company's now also moving into power purchase agreement signing a significant one earlier this year with res 
Australia. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so we were slight pioneers, if I must say so myself, in the uh, power purchasing agreement, PPA, with Res Australia. So it was a $100 million contract that we signed for a 70-megawatt solar farm. And really, to put that into perspective, it's about enough to power 35,000 homes. So Telstra at no point in time consumes all of that energy. All that we're doing is purchasing the output of the energy and all the LGCs, so sorry, large generation certificates associated with um, the RES solar plant. Is that sort of project in Emerald in Queensland the future, do you think, for Telstra? Can we expect to see more of those sorts of power purchase agreements in renewable energy? I absolutely think that Telstra will be investing a lot more in trying to understand how we can get more involved in power purchase agreements. We have, as an organisation, a very strong credit profile. So it allows us to be able to support new investment projects into these renewable uh, projects across Australia, particularly where we see ourselves protecting our own risk management and being key players in reducing emissions. Uh, Why wouldn't we want to do it? So let's talk a bit more about your role within that. What's the day of an energy systems engineer like? What do you do? So at the moment, what I do is I liaise with a lot of different contractors. So I am the only engineer at the moment on the project I'm working on, which is about diesel generators and the integration of our diesel generators with the national grid. So I'm working a lot with distribution companies. I'm working a lot with contractors who are out there doing a lot of field work. I'm out on site every couple of weeks just checking out our infrastructure, making sure that projects we're doing are viable. I'm approving drawings. I'm approving technical documentation. I'm changing a lot of people's perceptions, particularly just a few days ago, I got a call from one of our contractors who said, oh, I need to talk to the technical person from Telstra. And I said, "Mm mm-hmm, and? And he goes, so give me the contact details of the technical person from Telstra. And I said, I have. And he goes, no, you haven't. I've got no technical person. I've only just got your name down here. And I said, mm-hmm, that's because I'm the technical person from Telstra. So for examples like that where it's a bit of a cultural change as well and it's, it's really cool. So you get to go out on site. You're there because you deserve to be there. And I'm learning a bucket load about how energy systems works alongside providing input about things that I've learned along the way. So it's definitely a two-way street. I've got a lot that I can learn. I've got a lot to contribute to and technically just a very, very steep learning curve, uh, liaising with a lot of different players and particularly people who are really looking at me for answers. So challenges all the way, but definitely not impossible. And what's your ambition? Where do you see the role going? My ambition is to be, drum roll, and releasing first time on Arena's podcast, everyone. I want to be a CEO of an ASX-listed company. Now, being a 28-year-old female, probably highly ambitious, but again, I just saw a recent report that came out, uh, I think it was from the Diversity Council of Australia, and it just highlighted how poor the leadership is with diverse women from different backgrounds, uh, particularly women of colour, I definitely want to see that change. I definitely want to influence how businesses work. I've got the drive to be able to get there. Uh, It's just a matter of whether I have to keep pushing through closed doors and I'm totally ready to do that. Excellent pitch. (laughs) 
So within energy, the Clean Energy Council has a Women in Renewables initiative, trying to get greater representation at all levels, including at the top. Do you think the industry is changing in its acceptance of diversity? I think that there's a lot more that's being done to accept diversity. Um, I don't think the industry is ready to deal with difference and celebrate difference and allow people to come to an organisation as their whole self and just be proud of being who they are. There's almost a perception that you have to conform to a certain standard to be accepted within corporate industries in general, but particularly energy industries. I mean, you you mentioned yourself, 6% of leadership are females. If you just look around at all the energy organisations that we have you see the representation of females at the lower levels and you definitely see representation of females in roles that are not technical, but you just are, it's not translating into executive roles and leadership roles. What's your message to other young women who might be looking at getting into engineering in the energy industry, given all that? We do still sound like we're on the first couple of steps and there's a whole other ladder ahead of us. My takeaway for any young particularly female engineers is don't give up try to find a mentor who you think can relate to your experiences who's in the industry at the moment make connections throughout the industry one of the things that I really struggled to do at the start was just find people who I could speak to who just understood what I was going through Uh, it was only when I met a female engineering manager who I really clicked with and she was the one who guided me towards making some really good decisions. And she was almost like my sponsor in the organisation I used to work for. So she just made sure she put me up into positions that I wouldn't be otherwise privy to get. I'm pretty lucky because I work with a great team and I know that you know, if and when I do move on, it's probably not going to be the same and I'm not going to have that same luxury But it's been a good confirmation for me, just for my confidence and just bringing me back into the industry, that there is space for us within these particular organisations and we do have the right skills to pass on to these companies. It's just a matter of breaking through. And if I can ever be of any help to anyone, please shout out because that's what we're all here for, to work as a collective to make some change in energy. Excellent advice. Thanks, Nada. Hopefully next time we'll be speaking to you as a a CEO and as a young woman in the industry. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again. Thank you. In the next episode, we take the innovators on the road to Flinders Island to find out what's involved in setting up a clean and green microgrid in a small community. I'm Adam Morton. Thanks for listening to The Innovators, a rewired podcast by Arena. You can find us and review us and tell us how much you like us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. You can also find out heaps more about renewable energy and the energy transition that's underway by following us on Facebook or going to the Arena Wire website where there's a stack of information updated daily. It's at arena.gov.au forward slash blog.